0: Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to Episode 7, Ray Hunt, Uncle, Coach, and Mentor. In this episode, we'll be exploring the life of my wife Kelly's Uncle Ray and the impact he had on the lives of many people, including her own. I selected this story because for years I've heard Kelly tell me about her uncle, who, by the way, passed away four years before we ever met. She still talks fondly about him, even though she was only 14 when he passed away. So Kelly's here with me now. Kelly, can you share some memories of him and why is he still important to you today?
1: Sure, I would love to. My Uncle Ray was born in 1923, in Brooklyn. He lived there his entire life. I was also born in Brooklyn, but my family moved to Long Island and then to New Jersey when I was six. When we moved to New Jersey, we would make trips to go visit my Uncle Ray and my grandmother, who we called Nanny, every couple of weeks. But often, my Uncle Ray wasn't there. Where was he? Well, he was out doing some scouting and things like that, outdoor things. I didn't really know what he did. I had no knowledge of what he even did for a living, let alone what he was doing on the weekends.
0: And what was it like when he was there?
1: Oh, it was great. We would ring the doorbell, run down the hall, open the door, and every once in a while when he was there... He would be hiding behind the door and jump out and surprise us. And it was always a good time because he always made us feel special. And we always had a lot of fun when he was there. Occasionally, I would stay and visit for a couple of days. And one weekend, Uncle Ray was there with Nanny. And they took me to my first show at Radio City Music Hall. And
0: what was that show? It was
1: called, yes, I do. It was called What's Up, Doc? And of course, The Rockettes.
0: So you had not only Nanny, but also Uncle Ray, so it was like a two for one deal that weekend.
1: Oh definitely. Yeah, it was great. And a show to boot. Yes, it sounded like for it was sure. a lot of fun. It was.
0: You had mentioned to me when he got sick, he had cancer, that he wanted to pass away at the camp can you remember that
1: i do he died in 1977 at the age of 54 and at that point i had learned about this club that he used to love to go to out by harriman state park which is the border of new jersey and new york it was called sebago canoe club i didn't know at that time what his involvement with it was he had requested that he be brought out there to die that's where he felt the most comfortable I remember going with my parents to bring him out there, and I believe one of my brothers joined us also. We got him set up on this platform, tent, cabin type of structure. There was a man there, and I don't remember his name, that I guess was going to be in charge of taking care of him. And the very next day we get a call saying that he's not doing well. They're unable to give him the care he needs and to pick him up and bring him back to New York to the hospital. So that's what my parents did. I did not go on that return trip, but when my parents dropped him off in New York, by the time they got back home to New Jersey, I got the call that he had passed away.
0: Now, tell me, did you attend his wake and his funeral, and what was that like?
1: I did. I have never seen or been to a wake and funeral like that. It was sad, but it was also amazing because there were Hundreds upon hundreds of people paying tribute to him at his week. I couldn't believe that one person could know so many people but there were kids in scouting uniforms and different clubs and i found out later he worked for the new york transit and there were co-workers and just people from all walks of life there to honor him that's an amazing memory
0: i think also you probably saw that the outdoors and the lake club was so important to him that he wanted to go there for his remaining days And then on the other side, you see all these people who obviously he had impacted, who came to pay their respects to him.
1: The funeral was pretty much a repeat of the wake. So it was a real tribute to the impact he had on others that I knew nothing about. So that really got me interested to find out who is this person that everybody seems to love.
0: He was busy impacting people's lives. And this was something that Kelly and I were both interested to find out. So. We both embarked on a little adventure earlier this year, and we did a little research on the internet, and we found an article from 2016 from a man named Hap Welpley, It was in the Sebago Lake Canoe Club newsletter. In it, he mentioned Ray Hunt as his coach. We were able to get in touch with Hap and we had the most marvelous conversation with him and we've had several since and he was able to introduce us to Mike Johnston and also Don Andrizzi, who is Hap's brother-in-law. The three gentlemen have spent time talking with us and telling us about Ray and actually the three of them are on the show joining us today and here they are. I'd now like to welcome Hap Welpley, Mike Johnston, and Don Andrizzi to our show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Hey, good morning. Same here. Glad to be with you guys. Thanks for doing this. It's great. Great. Thanks so much for being here today with us and for being willing to share your memories of my Uncle Ray with all of our listeners. I'd like
0: to start off right at the beginning. I'm going to ask you all, how did you first meet Ray Hunt? How did you first come to know him? So I'm going to start with Hop.
2: All of us, we joined the canoe and Kayak Club of St. Francis Prep. Now, it's a very unique club for any high school. It's, I think, the only one that I know of that had it in the Brooklyn area. I joined it in the winter time, So there was our winter practice. Our coach was Brother Lewis. He said, well, it's time to teach you how to canoe and kayak. So we went to this inlet called Paddocket Basin, which is off Jamaica Bay in Brooklyn, Canarsie, Brooklyn. And that was our first exposure to canoeing and kayaking. And Ray was the coach along with Brother Lewis. It was nice to meet him there. And he was a great contrast with Brother Lewis. Brother Lewis was a great guy, kind of an old sailor salty type whereas Ray was more the cuddly teddy bear type. So when you got there, you knew that if you fell over, Ray was going to get you out of the water.
0: Terrific. How about Mike? How about your experience first meeting Ray?
3: My experience was much like Hap's. The common bond there was St. Francis and the canoe and kayak team. Eventually, as Hap said, we all reported to the Tobago Canoe Club, where we all paddled for that club in the summertime in the race series. But that's where I first came to know Ray. So Ray was really the first coach that I had at the club as we would come under Ray's tutelage and he would teach us the fundamentals of paddling uh, canoes and kayaks.
0: What did that look like when he was coaching you? How would he coach you paddling?
3: Ray was very patient. We would later advance to another coach by the name of Gordon Miller, who, much like Brother Lewis, was not as comforting a coach as Ray was. So it was good to have Ray as the beginning coach. Terrific. Don, how about
4: you? What was your first experience with Ray? Again, another St. Francis Prep graduate. What really piqued my interest about the canoe team was when I was a freshman, there were these rumors of this group of boys that had been on the canoe team and they had been up in Canada on a trip and had been lost. That piqued my interest and I started paddling in the spring of 1971 through the canoe team and then met
3: Ray via the canoe club.
0: When Ray was coaching all of you, did you get very competitive as a school
3: we were very competitive, and we won, I don't know how many championships, but we were certainly very competitive in the sport. Each year, we
2: won the national champion. Now, there weren't that many schools, but there were more than you would think. On the Hudson River, there were a couple, and then there were some throughout the country. I think that it was successful because Ray and Bruno Lewis were very dedicated
0: to the program, and they were great teachers and coaches. Gotcha. Are you all from Brooklyn originally? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I guess I'd it works. Yeah. I understand that Ray Hunt was uh, very enthusiastic about taking young men, whether it was scouts or, or young men he was coaching in school, uh, on wilderness trips. I know mm-hmm. there were several trips that you all were involved in. The first one is named the Chef River trip. I'm going to start with Mike. Mike, could you tell us a little bit about that wilderness trip and how Ray prepared
1: you for that?
3: Yeah, it was a great trip. It was the first time I'd ever been camping. So picture a kid from Brooklyn. This was really my first experience in the wild. It was about as wild as a camping expedition that you're ever gonna see. Because these trips, you are completely alone. I mean, once you started, you didn't see another individual other than your party for the next two weeks. I'd like to say that Ray was really running his own outward bound program. You were thrust into this the very first night that we camped, Ray had to go back to the town of Shibugamu to drop the car off. So he left us at the beginning of the Perch River, which was the start of our trip. We had about a three day uphill slog on the Perch till we hit what was called the height of land. And then we started down the ship. So Hap and I, I'll never forget this. So there we were late at night. I don't know, it's nine or 10 o'clock. The rain is just unbelievable. Lightning, thunder no flashlight, so we were literally trying to set this tent up by the light given off by the lightning strikes. However many seconds of light we had, we tried to figure it out, oh, there's a corner, there's a stake. We finally got this tent set up and crawled inside of it, spread our sleeping bag out and of course that tent leaked like a sieve. there happened i spent the night two wet puppies curled up fetal position shivering (laughs) till the first light of daylight came along and then ray eventually made it back from town so that was the beginning of our trip and the beginning of my camping experience total of two weeks on the river we probably had at least eight or nine days of rain
0: my quick question just for the listeners where is the chef river
3: the Chef is in Quebec. It's a well-known river, very heavy white water, a serious river for serious paddlers. And if you don't know what you're doing, you could get hurt in a hurry. In fact, on that trip we made with Ray, below one of the big waterfalls that we had to portage around. And when I say a waterfall, probably a... 60 to 80 foot drop on this one waterfall. Below that fall, we found a canoe that had gone over the fall. In that canoe was a camera, and Ray traced the camera back to the owners, and it was a boys' school in Pennsylvania. They didn't go over the falls. The canoe did, and the canoe was total. We found it a mangled mess, but yet the camera, Ray figured out who owned it.
0: Good detective work. Mike, around what year was your Chef River trip?
3: It was 68. So it was the summer of Woodstock. In our preparation for the trip, a weekend or two before we left, the trip was in August of 68. We had gone up to Lake Sebago to pack up and do our food preparation. So where we would take the food, everything had to be packed in waterproof bags. We met at the Sebago Canoe Club cabin in Harriman State Park and distributed it amongst how much weight each and every one of us was going to carry. It was a big deal on the portages because you had to carry your canoes and your packs. It was heavy work. My goodness.
0: Was that the trip where you ran into a little difficulty on the water?
3: Yeah, we were running a rapid called Asian Falls. It was just pure heavy water, and it was runnable if you had a cover on your canoe. (laughs) It wasn't runnable in the open Grumman aluminum canoes that we were paddling in at the time. Into Asian Falls we went and it was a boiler. I mean, just tons and tons of heavy water. We were doing pretty well, but the boat filled with water And before you know it, the boat went out from under us. That was the last time I saw Hap. Don't know where he went, but I know where I went, and it was down. I apparently got pushed under. I was under for a long period of time. I mean, long enough that at first I tried to just swim and get back up to the top. I could see light, so I knew which way is up, which way is down. And I struggled just trying to get to the top. I realized that wasn't working, and I said, boy, I better do something else, so I started stripping off my clothes. Whatever time that took, the initial struggle, then realize it wasn't working, then take my clothes off, that's how long I was underwater. Then finally, I vividly remember, okay, this is it. You know, I'm done. I'm toast, life flashes before you, and it really is a boom, boom, boom series of snapshots, and then everything was peaceful. Then the next thing I knew, I caught an upwelling, and it brought me to the top. And lo and behold, my pack was right where I came atop and the packs were very buoyant because they were filled with bands that had been tied tight, waterproof, and just hung on the pack till I basically got my air back and got down to the bottom of the rapid.
0: Oh, boy, that, that sounds terrifying. Hap, can you share a little bit about the Chef River trip from your perspective?
3: Mike? My- described it quite well
2: i actually learned something from mike when he talked about almost drowning because my thought all the time was well why didn't you grab your pack well i was in the back of the boat he was in the front of the boat so when you fall over or the boat swamps either way which you really swamped, the current pushed him away whereas the current a pack is right in front of the guy in the back of the boat so almost any time we fell over the first thing I would do would be grab for that pack. That's why he was in danger and, and I wasn't. Every time you went in the water, and we fell over a number of times, it was like the, what do they call it, a January 1st when everybody goes for a swim. It was like that. the coldest water i could ever remember the other thing was the black flies and the portages the portages were absolutely horrendous Uh, and part of it is they think physically uh, at least i wasn't up to it yet meaning uh, weight wise and strength wise i remember times and i'd be like a turtle i couldn't get up until mike either i'd have to take the pack off or mike would turn around come back and give me a hand pick me up and then i'd be off again in general My memory of the trip was, it was like the worst two weeks of my life. You were constantly challenged. You were challenged by the rain, the cold, the black flies, and the river itself. Every rapid was a chance to go swimming when you didn't feel like going swimming. The other main memory I still have is, Mike talked about reaching the height of land. And the height of land was this beautiful lake called Philex Lake. I remember when we got there in the evening, setting up camp for dinner. It was the first time we saw the sun.
0: I do remember hearing about the bacon, who got to carry the bacon.
2: Every trip when we got into Canada, we would buy a slab of bacon. And then you'd wrap it in a plastic bag. And every camper, canoe, or everybody on the trip loved to eat the bacon. Nobody wanted to carry the bacon. You'd have to put it on the top of your pack. It was heavy. And then you had to care for it like a baby. At the end, when you got out to camp, you wouldn't leave it in your pack because you were afraid bears would come to it. You don't want it near your tent. So you'd have to tie a rope around it, find a tree and put it like eight, 10 feet up in the tree to prevent that. And every morning you would get it down, you cut it, you'd enjoy your bacon, but then you'd go through the whole process again.
0: When you smelled that like cooking though, it was sort of worth it, I guess.
2: We loved eating it. We didn't mind cooking it. We just didn't want to take care of it
0: a little bit about Ray so when you drove up was Ray driving and how many people are in his car
2: it was Ray's it was a Ford station wagon but not a big station wagon
3: it was a Ford Falcon
2: Ford Falcon thanks Mike six of us would fit in we'd fit all our gear in and then we would put three canoes one next to each other on top and then a third canoe went on top of the two canoes and that's how we traveled
3: this thing was way down today I don't think we would dare do that the next trip Ray rented a car I guess he decided, hey, the Falcon had seen its better days If you remember on the chef trip, we had to push it to uh, start it every time. None of us drove, we were all teenagers. So Ray was really the only driver. So he would drive the entire way to Canada up and back and we would just hand him coffee (laughs) 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 to keep him going. And when we got to our, wherever we were staying that night on the way up, we would always try and park on a hill. So in the morning, Ray had to pop the clutch to get the car started. The second year, I think Ray actually rented a car that's
0: a good segue actually into the next trip the sanitaire also in canada mike could you tell us a little bit about that trip and interacting with ray on that trip
3: that trip was a little bit different. The white water on that trip wasn't as serious as on the chef. Again, as we said earlier, the chef had white water that could really hurt you if you made a mistake. So the white water uh, wasn't quite as serious on that trip, which was, at, I believe, in Ontario. We started that in kind of unique way. We boarded a Canadian National Railroad train in Sanitaire. They allowed us to load our canoes in the baggage car for freight. Apparently, this is quite common up there. Ray had some discussions with the conductor and showed him on a map where he wanted to get off. And it wasn't at a train station. It was really in the middle of nowhere at a river crossing. And Ray indicated, hey, that's where we would like to get off. And sure enough, the train accommodated that request. We stopped at that bridge, that river crossing. We went up to the baggage car, opened the doors. Out came our canoes and packs and everything. They closed the door up and off the train went. It was a typical wilderness trip. Again, Ray was running his own little Outward Bound program. And that's really what the trips were about. I think, fortunately, that second trip, we had quite a bit more sunshine than we did on the chef. It was, in my mind, again, more pleasurable, but you're always ravenous. You're a young kid, you're burning thousands of calories a day because you're moving from the time you get up in the morning, you're paddling all day long. So when you get to that campsite at night, you're hungry. There's usually never really enough food because you have to ration because you're on this trip for two weeks. We came across Canadian National Weather Station. But as we came across that station and we walked in there, they were well stocked. With food. We ended up putting a dent in their pantry that night uh, <laughs> when we stumbled in there. So that was a good memory that I think Hap and I have talked about repeatedly. Wow, oh,
0: terrific. I, I want to ask now about another trip, St. Marguerite in Quebec, I believe. And I'm going to ask Hap if he could share about this. But first, I have a question for you. Your first trip, you said, could have been the two of the worst weeks of your life. And here you are back on another trip. Why is okay, that? So the-
2: First was definitely the worst two weeks of my life. The second was quite a bit better. I think something draws you to it. And maybe part of it is a challenge. The fact that it did push you and you recognize that that's something that you need to do once in a while. And the other is the beauty of the wild. Growing up in Brooklyn, the closest we came to nature was when we went to Sabago Canoe Club. These trips showed us a world we've never seen before. I think that drew a lot of us back. I'm a pretty good outdoorsman. I know I'm a good canoer and you're feeling maybe not cocky maybe a little cocky you're a teenager, right? So the Marguerite figure it's another wilderness trip. It'll be fun. Looking forward to it. Now, this trip was the furthest north of any trip that Ray had explored. So he hadn't been on this river or anywhere near it. The only maps that were available done by the Canadian government, but they were taken based on aerial photography. And they're photographing wilderness areas. So exactness probably wasn't that critical i'm sure they got the latitude longitude right but what the terrain was was not as clear the railroads would let you get off well one of ray's contact was this guy named jim peacock who lived in montreal suburb but through that through jim peacock they decided on the saint marguerite got on a railroad we told the conductor where we had to get off We started on streams and lakes, but I remember the weather being pretty good. And a couple days, we got to the Marguerite. Might have taken us a little longer than we wanted, but not too much. And the Marguerite was a beautiful river. I remember it being spectacular. I mean, every time you looked up, you would see a a significant hill or or a mountain and a bend in the river, and you would want to take a picture. It was just gorgeous. There were challenging rapids, but we were slightly delayed. Most of these trips, we wanted to be a two-week trip, and we were a little bit behind schedule nothing terrible but we came to what we thought would be really towards the end of the trip based on our plan we should have had maybe two maybe three days left that's it but it was at the beginning of a canyon now this canyon it, it was marked on the map it showed some heavy water, but it, there's nothing warning you that these are falls. And again, well, there were about four adults and four younger people on the trip. And the portage was this 25-mile portage that went around, would bypass the canyon. But it was 25 mile. We all discussed it. I, I wouldn't say it was a vote because Ray was the leader. He'd decide which way we were going to go. Think of four young guys wanting to do a 25-mile portage. You know, we're not voyaging. Let's do the canyon.
0: Sorry, just for the benefit of the listeners, could you explain what a portage is?
2: So a portage is, you leave the river, and it can be anywhere from 100 yards to most portages were a half mile or so. It's a trail that will take you around a rapid or a fall. So there's a section of the river that is not canoeable, or in the beginning of the trip to get to the river, you were going through an area which couldn't be canoed because of rapids that couldn't be paddled or waterfalls. So that's a portage and you would take it from the beginning of the portage to where the end, where you're going to get back on the river. A one-mile portage is a three-mile portage. This is significant. So we decide we're not going to do this. We're great canoeists. We're going to paddle this canyon. If we fall in once in a while, it's worth the price for a 75-mile portage, right? We get into the canyon, get to the first rapid. You say, this isn't a rapid. This is a fall, and we are not paddling this. And Ray, God love him, he was always careful. I mean, we would never paddle a rapid that we didn't Know where it ended and what the water was like. We'd always stop and check it out. Well, we checked this one out. We're already in the canyon. We said, okay, we can't do this. Let's portage this one. And we found, although it was tough and the canyon soon was closing in, The first one was about a mile and was a pain because there was no portage trail. It took us a long time, but we portaged about a mile. We said, okay, that was bad. Then before you know it, we paddled just a little bit. So the second one, we say, well, there's no way we're going to, there's no easy portage. The the rapid doesn't look too bad. Let's try lining our canoe. You leave your canoes in the water. We took our pack over the rocks to the end. leaving the canoes at the beginning of the rapid. It was really, really tough lining them because of the rocks. We weren't successful in that, at least on one canoe. Somebody let the line out a little too hard in the stern. The river got it and it ends up at the bottom of the rapid wedged in between rocks. We didn't even find it that night. That night we ended up sleeping, no tents, just got our sleeping bags out. Uh, started a fire on the rocks and camped on the rocks That's something you ever want to do the next morning find that the canoe that we lost at the bottom of the rapid wedged in between rocks we lost the canoe we've spent i'd say at least eight days in this canyon that we thought we'd get through in one day we should have been home by now the parents are going nuts it took so long because there were no portage trails and canyon was sheer on both sides sheer rocks so then we decide to climb up hoping that we would find a flat ridge line on the top. So we climbed up, oh, it must've been a thousand feet with canoes, with packs, only to find that there was no ridge line. It was thick forest. So we climbed back down. That's what takes eight days. We made a lot of mistakes. What we were thinking was we got to make better time. So the only way we can make better time, now remember we have eight people and three canoes. So there's a potential to get rid of stuff. Let's lighten our load to get to the point where we can do all the portages in one shot. We succeeded in lightening our loads enough. We do that and we get down back on the river. But before you know it, we are quickly running out of food, and so we're hungry. So suddenly we're on the river, Ray takes me in a canoe. We cross the river to think, well, maybe the other side is better. We hear this propellant. Holy moly, a helicopter's coming. Remember, we're already late a week. My mother works for the phone company. I am an only job. My mother, she comes in to work and she's crying. They take her up to some uh, head muckety-muck in the New York telephone company. He's going to help them by ca- contacting the Canadian telephone company. What's the first question? Well, what river are they on? All she could tell them was we were in Canada. <laughs> that so will narrow it down. Ray's mom, <laughs> I don't think she even knew the river. She had phone number for Peacock. So then they start bugging Ray's mom. Now Ray. When he goes on these trips, I think recognize the possibility that parents could be nervous. So he makes her swear with her last breath, you will not give them any information. She held this for a couple of days, but eventually had to break down. Before you know it, they're sending out rescue parties. So that helicopter was the Royal Canadian Air Force. It was unbelievable. They landed in this one spot in the canyon where it was black water. It wasn't rapids. But there were cliffs on both sides. The pilot was an expert to land that helicopter. And then he had to keep that forward motion so that he didn't go down the river. Ray and I get back in the canoe when we see this helicopter landing. We're the only ones in the canoe at the time. They threw us a line and we paddled to the helicopter, pulled the line in. One guy in the canoe held the boat and Ray and I got out on the helicopter. They wanted to know from Ray how is everything. We say, oh, we're doing okay. It's taking us longer, but we're doing okay. They wanted to talk to me being a kid, probably to make sure Ray's not crazy. So he said, how are you? I said, well, we're all healthy but hungry. We got back in the canoe and then they threw Drew in this big box, which contained the remnants of their box lunches. So we got the box lunches. We get back in the canoe, get back together. It wasn't too long. We got to our campsite that night. We were so happy that they came. We knew that somebody knew where we were. And those box lunches were our only food. So we divided up the remnants of their box lunches among the eight of us. And we were so careful. We cut the radishes so we all had half of a radish. We were kind of excited And we think, well, they're probably going to come back. Well, they didn't come right back. So we got back into canoes and then we hear the propellers again. This time the guys can't land. But what they do was they hoisted down one of the crew and we say, no, 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 we don't want to be taken out. We're okay. I think he knew we weren't coming out. They were just checking on us. Remember, we have three canoes and eight people and now we're anticipating, hey, we're going to get back on the river. We don't need an extra two people to weigh down canoes. They wanted to send two people out that were drivers on the thought that maybe there was a road that would allow them to drive upriver. So two people came out and they hoisted them out but they hoisted down this carton which contained a case of baked beans and this big pardon of bread and then they took off i was at wit's end and i think the other two young guys all of us were kind of saying okay we've been fed and we've seen helicopters the last two days why don't we just hang out the helicopter's gonna come back Why do we keep doing this oh but we'll lose three canoes okay we're gonna lose three canoes but we're gonna get out we kind of struck and rain never gets angry He was always even tepid. So I let Ray down. I'm not sure anybody else wanted to keep going. Ray kept saying, we're at the end. This is the end of the canyon. But that sounded like, okay, the Northwest Passage to us. You know, yeah, we're at the end of the canyon. Right. So we set up camp and we stayed there. We toasted 20 loaves of bread and (laughs) ate 12 cans of baked beans, blazing saddle in real life. (laughs) We gorged ourselves on everything we had. We were so full, but we kept eating. If you think about it, this is real dumb because if the helicopter doesn't come back, we're again out of food. And the helicopter didn't come back. So in a day, we got to the end of it. And then we had another day paddling rapids, but the rapids, as Ray predicted, had eased up. In two days, we were at the end. We got up on the second day for breakfast. We had no food. We boiled water. So we were drinking hot water. Now it was getting cold. So we get out and I don't think Ray forgave us yet. There was a lot of pressure on him. You don't want a helicopter coming in and rescuing you. He's done this for his whole life. And now you got helicopters flying in. Well, we paddled for at least two hours. And lo and behold, we come across a cabin. And there's smoke coming out of the chimney. You know there's people in the cabin because you're seeing smoke. We get in the cabin and we're greeted by two French Canadians. They don't speak English and we don't speak French. But the code of the wilderness kind of takes over. And for Ray... I think he wanted to regain some degree of dignity. And even though you can't speak the same language, you're sharing the experience of the wilderness. Everybody knows a few words and some things you just know. They're coming in from outside. They put a pot on to make us some tea and everything's going great. And Ray is having a nice conversation. And then the nice host puts out a bag of Oreo cookie. It was like putting out Oreo cookies to a group of hungry hyenas. You know, we the three of us, I'm pretty sure we almost bit off this guy's hand. I mean, Ray was just a gas. We ate 30 cookies in about five seconds. I don't think Ray got any because he wanted to be cool, and we just wanted cookies. They had another bag, and we ate that too. Ray couldn't get us out of that cabin after that quick enough. We finished our tea. He said goodbye. I think this is the second time we probably got Ray kind of really ticked. First was the strike, next was being so uncool. And the helicopter came back with a sheriff. They were going to take us out, whether Ray wanted to or not. They knew we were in good shape. We were on the end of the river, so there was no need to take us out. It was the experience of a lifetime. I can remember it as if it was today.
1: Wow.
0: Wow. Don, you heard about that trip. So you just had to go on one yourself, right? I did. You know, I was a freshman, and the school was a
4: buzz about these guys that were lost in Canada. I had been been interested a little in the outdoors. I had done a little bit of scouting, but uh, this was well above and beyond the typical.
0: So you went on a trip. I think, Cap, you went too, but I'll ask you about it, Don. Uh, It was called the Manawan Parabunka is that in yeah. Canada as well? So it is in Canada
4: and the Parabaka River is a fairly big river which flows north to south and ends in Lake St. John which is north of Montreal. It was a beautiful beautiful trip. It had almost all of the things that happened Mike really had talked about. We had to go up and find somebody to shuttle us in on the roads. What was interesting was this trip was one of the bigger trips. There were actually 12 of us. I think that was the biggest trip Ray said he ever ran. It's Starts with uh, packing all of the food, and I think I weighed my pack. It was close to seventy pounds. I can distinctly remember giving up the food, and there were twelve piles of food, and we picked numbers from a hat. And there was one pile that was significantly smaller. Of course, the guy that gets number one happens to be a young guy, and he says, "I'll take that pile." Well, that was the pile that had the bacon. The bacon wasn't there; we they hadn't <laughs> bought it yet. It was a very interesting lesson about. It had all of these life lessons about being selfish. The of working as a team member and giving things back, there were all sorts of things that we got out of it. That trip, same thing. We were in a back of a dump truck with six canoes and we were all piled in the truck. Now, this is August, but we're driving up through a kind of cold, rainy weather in Canada. And I can remember having all of my outdoor clothing on to just keep warm for this however 100 mile trip on dirt roads in. We started out with something called Chute de Pass and we paddle these lakes and again, portage from lake to lake up through the height of land. It's just such an impressionable time in your life. These memories get seared into your memory bank. I can remember finishing a portage. I was with Alm Usual that time. We actually got to this lake first and so we had a little bit of free time and I can remember throwing a fishing lure in. I brought a fishing rod. Uh, The only thing we ever brought was a little daredevil spoon, a little red and white spoon, and catching the most beautiful fish I'd ever seen in my life. This little pond was filled with brook trout, and so once we started catching fish, we, we kept a bunch, and in the morning, we had brook trout fried in bacon. It was just a spectacular memory of that trip. There was rain. There was portages. Didn't mention it, but I'm sure that after the St. Marguerite trip in particular, since it was an extra week, all of the clothing that you wore had to be thrown out. You were on an aluminum canoe seat. (laughs) Your underwear was silver by the time you were done. (laughs) Um, Every piece of rain gear you had from portaging had holes in it. People looked like scarecrows at the end. I remember seeing the Northern Lights for the first time. I remember seeing loons for the first time, seeing a moose for the first time. There were all these first-time things for a 14-year-old from Brooklyn. It was just that kind of spectacular trip. That impression of that trip just got you hooked
0: on the outdoors. It really did. I think all of you mentioned you didn't have a lot of camping experience being from Brooklyn. Did he sort of instruct you with things or did he sort of let you find your own way? And was he more hands-on with his instruction when you were camping and things like that? I would say that we
4: were the next level after Boy Scout. I had been in Boy Scout, so I had an idea about camping, but this is different. You're not camping in a place in Alpine, New Jersey. You are camping in the wilderness. You had to be careful. And all of this instruction came during these trips, you know, about how you're Handling your axes and what you're doing with your food, and how you're keeping your pots clean so that nobody gets sick. Those were all really, really important things
3: that you got just via these trips. That's amazing. Just Leveraging off what Don said, Ray was a little bit of both. I mean, if he felt you needed help, he would kind of give you the instructions. But a lot of times it was, hey, he'll figure it out. He would jump in and provide you, hey, you no, know, here's how you do that. Here's how you do that. Don's comment about keeping the pots and pans clean. We didn't have to worry about that on our first chef trip because Jimmy Marin and George D'Angelo tipped their boat over. And unfortunately, they had all the pots in the pans. <laughs> <laughs> so... Again, on that chef trip, we didn't have any pots and pans. (laughs) Oh, boy. We were actually using where we had canned food. Once we would consume the food in the can, that became a pot. We were having to improvise. You gotta to learn to think on your feet because everything got lost. There was probably a life lesson there. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, all our pots and pans were in that one canoe that went over and we lost everything. Lesson <laughs> learned. Lesson learned. We had to we had to improvise. I echo Mike's
2: comment. I think Ray had a very good in terms of his coaching for wilderness stuff, a great blend of how much do you tell people and how much do you let them figure out on their own? I think he he really had that right.
0: Good point. Speaking of coaching, I wanted to ask Don, you actually did some serious paddling, competitive paddling with Ray as your coach for a while. Could you tell us about that? These trips were
4: the highlight for us of uh, the year, but most of the year we were really racing. So we raced uh, through the high school year. We trained in the wintertime, and then in the summer, we'd be members of Sebago. We'd move from being under the auspices of the school, our school team, to being under the Sebago team. Once you got to Sebago... Now there were various races and regattas throughout the country. There were regional races. They were called divisional races. And then they were, there were races in various places. And the nationals would be in different parts of the country each year. So we'd travel to these races. And Ray really was a coach for many of the junior racers during the summer. So, for example, in 1973, Ray coached us. And there were four of us who went to the Junior World Championship races in Vouch Poland. So that was 1973. In 1974, he coached us and we won a bunch of great races. Uh, We went up and raced in the uh, Dominion Day race, now the Canada Day races in Toronto. Ray was our coach and coached us very well. We were pretty good. Uh, You know, we were, I think, second or third at the Nationals. We won the 10,000 at the Nationals. There were a bunch of things that we really did well and went to the pre-Olympic regatta in Montreal. At the end of that summer, we were really racing really really well we were all thinking about the olympics and the olympics were going to be chosen on the basis of four man two man and singles what was interesting was there were some other people in the new york city area who were also trying to vie and to get to the olympic team Uh, there was a fellow named mike kelly who was national champion for quite a few years out of the new york athletic club but he was actually aligned with several guys from the midwest And they were going to race in the four-man kayak. There was a coach who came from Poland. He had been training the Italian national team and actually trained the world champion from Italy. And he moved to New York and he knew these two Polish guys who were at the New York Athletic Club. We got this offer for Bill and I to join them and a cadre of, there were six of us that were going to train together. And Ray did everything he could in terms of learning about training. He read books on physiology, books on weight training, books on kayak racing, on technique, and he did everything he could to get that information. It was paying off for him as a coach because we were doing really very well. But once we had this offer from this Polish coach to join the New York Athletic Club, Ray encouraged us. He said, look, you know, he's going to take you to the next level. I don't have those skills. I can't really take you there. There is a little bit of regret. I mean, as it turns out, out of those six people who went to race at the New York Athletic Club, only one made the Olympic team that year. In retrospect, Bill Hansen always used to say, we really should have stayed with Ray. And had he and I raced together in the two-man and stayed with Ray that extra year, we probably would have had a very, very good chance of making the Olympics just on our own with Ray. And again, hindsight's 2020, and that's one of those regrets that you have about it. And Ray was really just trying to do the best for us. He wasn't really looking out for himself. He was saying, look, you guys have the best shot with this Polish coach. Go with him. So...
1: Wow. So that's a nice story. Don, I'm gonna continue with you though. I'm, I want to talk about Ray's last trip, and I believe that was the Nottaway River.
4: Yeah. So the Nottaway was an interesting trip. The river actually flows north. It flows north up into James Bay. The river was going to end in a place where there were no roads. And so there was no train, there was no roads. So we were actually going to have to fly out. It was an interesting trip in that there were some portages. There started out with lakes. I would say that the weather for that trip was better than most. So we started in a town called Matagami and there were these big lakes. Uh, we were really quite worried about these lakes because the wind on these big lakes up north can blow really quite hard and make it very, very difficult for you to paddle. Well, we were really fortunate. The wind blew behind us, and we lashed two canoes together. There were only four of us on this trip. We started on this trip, thinking that these lakes were going to be terrible, but we lashed the canoes together, we put up a tarp, and we basically sailed a pontoon boat down these lakes. It was really spectacular. When we finally got to the river, there were a few portages, and I I can remember Ray seeming slow. You know, Ray was usually, on these portages, he was usually capable, capable of really handling a load and, you know, taking the canoe, uh, taking a big pack without any trouble, But this time he was having trouble. And and there was one portage in particular that I remember. The river had a, a slow bend to the left. And on the very left side of the river, there was this rocky channel well, the Rocky Channel was for when the water levels were much higher, the river would flow into that channel, but the, the rapids were really quite big there. So we, we ended up having to go over this Rocky Channel and and walking on these boulders was hard. I mean, it was hard for a healthy young guy. Ray, I noticed his ankles were swelling and, and he would step down and his, his feet would hurt. Somewhat later in the trip, and there's even a picture I think I sent you of us taking a nap, which was a, another unusual thing. We didn't often take naps in the middle of the day, but Ray was talking. Tired and we would take a fairly big lunch break and a pretty long nap because the trip was going well and we were really pretty much uh, right on schedule. And I noticed that his fingers had some swelling at the tips. Well, you know, this is 1977 and the next year I got to medical school and I was in a class and I started realizing that what he had was signs of clubbing and clubbing is a uh, one sign of what's called pulmonary hypertrophic osteoarthropathy, which is a sign that happens when you have uh, lung cancer. Mm. But we had an interesting trip. We make it to the end and and again, same same as all the trips. We saw moose, we had wolf prints around our camp. One morning we saw the Northern Lights. So we ended the trip at a place called Clean Camps on James Bay. We got there and the next day a plane flies in to take us out where it only has room enough to take one canoe. And two guys. So we decided that Ray and I would stay and wait for the second flight. Uh, we're left there just to twiddle our thumbs and wait for the plane. Well, the day is getting longer and longer and sunset is approaching and sunset comes and no plane comes back figure, well, okay, so they must have got delayed, and the next day, again, no plane comes back, and the whole day goes by, and so now, you know, we've had two nights that we have to stay there, and your mind basically starts to wander. They said, you know, look, did the plane go down? It's a beautiful, clear day here, and we can't imagine what's delayed them. Uh, The third day, late in the afternoon, we hear the sounds of a plane, and the plane is coming from the opposite direction. It's not coming from the way that it should. It's coming from the opposite way. That plane lands and it's a bigger plane which carries 12 people. The weather in Matogamy where they were was so terrible they couldn't fly a plane out. It was snowing and sleeting and we were sitting in beautiful weather up on James Bay and they were just delayed for a couple of days and that's the kind of the typical thing that happens up in the north. You just if you're in a wilderness place you don't know that people are going to be able to come and get you. Um, and did you
1: tell us that that was about 175 miles from where you were?
4: About a 175-mile trip, yeah. That The weather was that much different.
0: I imagine Ray, feeling responsible, was probably quite worried about what was going on.
4: Well, you know, I think Ray was sick. In, in retrospect, we know he succumbed to cancer shortly after that in that year. And so Ray was um, muted. He wasn't his usual self. He was spending a lot of time sleeping during the day. It wasn't the usual Ray. You know, Ray was Ray was always on these trips. He was always thinking, always planning, next steps, always thinking ahead. But I think that particular
0: trip he was feeling the effects of his illness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to go on to a little about general things about Ray. Maybe I'll start with you, Don. Ray spent a lot of time on these trips and coaching. What did he do for a living? Ray worked for the New York City Transit. He actually worked at
4: the transit stop that I used to go to school at Myrtle Avenue. We all commuted to high school. And uh, Hap, you got in one stop further out, I think. But uh, we would take the the subway in to high school every day. And Ray worked at that stop. He was a a token collector. My dad also worked for the transit. Kind of interesting. They had that transit city connection.
0: Mm -hmm. Hap, I'm going to ask you maybe, what was Ray's general demeanor? I spent oh, a lot of time with him. He,
2: he was just always a great guy. I mean, he was always a gentleman. His greatest love, I mean, picking it up on the token thing. Ray could have done a lot of stuff in his life. He didn't care about professional career or success in that realm. He loved being a Boy Scout leader. And then later with us being a coach and a wilderness guide. He just loved seeing young people and helping, not seeing, helping young people develop into men. St. Francis Prep was all boys, and Scouts was all boys at the time. Boys become men, and having a part in that, that's what made him check. That's what he loved.
0: Uh, Mike, would you like to add to that about Ray's demeanor, his priorities?
3: Going back to uh, Don was saying, the transit connection, I believe that Ray worked that job because it gave him a lot of freedom in terms of time. He would probably work the early shift, and that would give him the afternoons off. He could go down to the club and participate in the canoeing instruction. Some of my memories of Ray when we would do these trips, he always had this white straw cowboy hat uh, that he would wear on the trip, had a feather in it. He had an uncanny ability to read a river. If you know anything about canoeing, a lot of canoeing, particularly in Whitewater, involves knowing where to go in the river, where not to go, and that involves a certain skill of reading the currents and be able to look and know where rocks are. I have a lot of memories of half and I being stuck sitting on a rock somewhere and having Ray go right by us because He knew not to go where we were stuck, you know, (laughs) and he would slip to the right. And he had a lot of patience. He used to like to sing these little ditties as as he was going along paddling. I remember one that sticks in my mind about, you know, he would throw another log on the fire. Mother, you know, he'd sing something like that as he was canoeing down the river, you know, all those good memories. Oh,
0: that's terrific. Mm. Hap, I believe you attended Ray's funeral. First of all, Ray died at age 54 in 1977. Hap, could you tell us your memories of the last time you visited Ray and when you went to his funeral?
2: time i visited ray i remember it was the apartment where his mom lived and i visited him with don he was very sick uh, he was a trooper in the hospital he was still aiming to recover he was giving it a good fight but still was concerned about hey what are you doing and how are things when we visited him and it was at the very end of his life at stanhope street he understood where he was at and was at peace with that the funeral i mean Oh, hundreds, hundreds of people were there. He had so many friends and so many people that he had not only befriended, but coached and guided through life were there. It was beautiful to see all those people get together. And it was so sad, as you mentioned, he was so young when he passed and lost a great man.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember being at the funeral also and hundreds of cars in the funeral procession and the wake was just packed out to the streets, people of all ages. I just couldn't believe he knew so many people or had impacted so many people, which leads me to our final question for each of you. And Mike, I'm going to start with you. And that is how did knowing Ray impact your life?
3: Don touched on it earlier. And to me, it was absolutely, I credit Ray with my love of the outdoors. Prior to my first trip in Canada, I had... No camping experience, and Ray introduced me to that world that I may have never been introduced at all, and I credit him to this day. I'm still a canoeist, Pap and I got together last year and went up to the Shenandoah. I'd love to camp, I'd love to hunt. I've been to Canada several times as recently as last year, and I credit that to Ray. My first viewing of the northern light was on that chef River trip. He opened the door to a world I knew very little about. He was a great man.
1: Thank you so much. Don,
4: you next. It's hard to say more than Mike did. We all, I think, really got that from him, the love of the outdoors. I think probably, uh, at least in some part, that's one of the reasons why I live in Maine because I'm closer to the outdoors than one of those places that allows me to relive, so to speak, those memories of when I was in high school on these trips. Happen. I have been fortunate enough, we have houses close to one another in an area in northern Maine that's still pretty wilderness. And there's oftentimes you're out there and listening to the loons and being reminded of these, these first few trips. There's no light pollution. You get up and you look at the sky. So that love of the outdoors is really, I think, Ray's biggest contribution to my life. It also is interesting because Hap and I have looked at this before, you know, many of the rivers that we have been on are no longer paddleable. You know, that experience is lost to anybody else who tries to do that. Mm-hmm. App?
2: I echo what uh, both Mike and Don said about the love of outdoors. They, No question we got that from Ray. And just the an antidote on that, when Don found property where he bought a lot and then told me about it, we bought the lot next to him and we have a cabin there. Well, we still talk about it. We say, this is just like Canada. How many things do you have in life where you refer to something that was 50 years ago? not too many. We constantly refer back to that. doesn't this area, doesn't the land, doesn't the the lakes, the rivers remind you of Canada. In terms of the, the canoe trips, what do we learn on them? That really was our first exposure and it was a necessity to the idea of teamwork and doing your part. I mean, if you didn't do your part, the whole team would fail. Everybody had to set up tents. Everybody had to cook when it was their turn. We had to get through the portages. We had to chop wood. It was essential that everybody did their part on these wilderness trips. So we learned that from him. We learned it because you had to do it. It wasn't this empty lesson of going on a two-day outing to try to build teamwork. It wasn't an option. And probably the The fact that those trips were so challenging in all their aspects mentioned in the bugs, the cold, the strenuousness of the trip and the the challenge of the rapids and stuff, at least for me, they took me to the edge of what I could do. And that's where you really grow is when you're forced to the edge. So I thank him forever for doing that, because we actually kind of try to live life away from that edge. He brought us right to it.
1: So true. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and sharing your memories with us. It's meant the world to us. I'm supposed
0: to be the one who holds it together. (laughs) I gotta say, you guys have just been amazing from the day that we came across Hap's article in a Sebago Lake newsletter from 2016. It's just been a journey with you guys. And I feel like you're our friends. I did not know Ray. I met Kelly about four years after Ray passed away. What I do know is that she has always talked about him. So I thought this has got to be a pretty amazing guy. Saw pictures of him, maybe only one or two. And somewhere in the house, we have a red beret that belonged to him. But I just didn't know him that well. And I just felt this guy's really special. Meeting you guys and hearing about him and just the memories you have after 50 years, almost 50 years. is just, it's heartwarming. Now I know why Kelly thought so highly of him. And even though I didn't know him, I feel like I miss him almost as much as you all do. So I want to thank you. And for all our listeners, until next time, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. And have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, guys.
3: Thanks for pulling it together. did a great job.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.